0: Worship and Wednesday evening as well. Uh, there are so many opportunities to do other things, and so many people taking those opportunities to do other things. And so I just appreciate more and more everyone's willingness and eagerness and interest in these things that we do on Sunday evening and Wednesday evening. That you're willing to uh, take time to do that. Hope you brought your Bibles with you tonight, or maybe have them on your phone or electronic device. Just going to do a little Bible study tonight. and So I want you to try to engage with me and follow with me as we uh, talk about an idea in from the Scriptures. I'm going to begin by talking about the importance of the idea of covenant in the Bible. If you're a Bible student, you know that the covenant is an important feature of, of the Bible. In fact, I suppose a case could be made that it's the primary theme running through the Bible. Some people have argued that, that the primary idea primary theme is God's covenant with the people with his people and certainly it is a predominant notion it is a major idea in scripture the word covenant is found 265 times in the old testament that's a lot for a single word if my count is correct that's what i counted maybe i should say about 265 times and then about 33 times in the New Testament. So you're looking at close to 300 times just the word itself is used. Of course, a covenant is an agreement, a binding agreement between <clears throat> two parties. Maybe you could have more people involved in a covenant, but at least two parties uh, in which each party is obligated to perform a task or carry out a responsibility in the interest of the other party. And so If I enter into a covenant with Gary, you know, I bind myself, I obligate myself, I commit myself to doing something for Gary that would benefit him. And so there's this sense of responsibility and obligation, but also a sense of benefit. And so he would agree to do something of benefit for me as well. And so there's mutual benefit and and mutual obligation involved in a covenant. Now, the parties are not necessarily equal. Now, sometimes the parties engaged in a covenant or committed or, or in this binding agreement, sometimes they're, they're equals, but not always. So sometimes a stronger party will impose a covenant on a weaker party. And you see this especially when it comes to nations that enter into covenants. We would usually call that in a, a, a treaty, when nations enter into a, a treaty with each other. We're involved in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. So we've, in a sense, entered into a covenant with other nations, and we have an agreement, a binding agreement. We'll do certain things for them, they do certain things for us. Everybody involved in that covenant makes that kind of agreement on behalf of everyone that's in the treaty or everyone in the covenant. But again, not all parties are equal. Sometimes you have a stronger nation imposing a treaty or a covenant on a weaker nation and so a stronger nation might conquer the weaker nation and they might say to the weaker nation now i'll tell you what we will come to your aid when you get in trouble with your enemies and we'll help you and we'll fight for you but you have to pay us tribute (laughs) and the weaker nation doesn't really have a choice in the matter if they rebel or if they refuse within the stronger nation, makes it a lot harder on the weaker nation. And so it's, the, the covenant doesn't always involve uh, equals. Sometimes uh, there are stronger uh, people involved in, and weaker ones involved. In 1 Kings chapter 20, and verse 34, and I'll just cite some of these scriptures. I don't necessarily have to turn to all of them. You have Israel enter into entering into a covenant with Syria. On this occasion, Israel is the stronger nation. They've defeated Syria in battle, and Syria is the weaker nation, but Syria agrees to enter into a covenant with Israel. In the Bible, as we said a moment ago, the idea of covenant is is a common one in the Bible. In the Bible, there are covenants between individuals. And so, two individuals might enter into an agreement, a binding agreement we might call that a contract uh, uh, between themselves. For example, in Genesis 21, Abraham and Abimelech enter into a covenant. This has to do with uh, wells that uh, both of them were trying to use at, at that particular time. In Malachi chapter 2, we read that marriage involves a covenant. Uh, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15, Take heed then to your spirit and let uh, no one uh, deal with Treacherously against the wife of your youth. Uh, verse 14, the previous verse says, uh, you, Yet you say, For what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you've dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You enter into an agreement, as man and woman, husband and wife, you enter into a binding agreement, that uh, you will act in the best interest of each other. In the Bible, sometimes covenants are made between friends. 1 Samuel 18, verse 3, David and Jonathan enter into a covenant. Sometimes kings enter into covenants. 1 Kings 20, and verse 34, Ahab and Ben-Hadad enter into a covenant with each other. They're two kings. When it comes to God's covenant with men, the first covenant that God enters into with men it happens with Noah. Remember, God enters into an agreement after the flood that He wouldn't destroy the, the earth with water again, with a flood again. And the sign of the covenant, the sign of the agreement was the rainbow. Whenever you see the rainbow, you're reminded that God has bound Himself to this agreement. I will not destroy the world by means of a flood any longer. But there are other covenants with, uh, between God and His people as well. Uh, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I'll make of you a great nation, I'll give them a land to live in, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. God's entered into an agreement. He's bound Himself to doing these things for the descendants of Abraham. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. God enters into a covenant with Israel, with the nation of Israel, See this especially in Exodus chapter 19 at uh, Mount Sinai, just before the law is given. God says to them, uh, He kind of reviews His history with them, which is very common when it comes to the uh, establishment of a covenant. We have a history together. We've been through this and this and this. And so now we're entering into this agreement. And so God reviews His history with Israel. And he says to them in verse 5, Now then, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. And so God says, I'll be your God. I'll bless you. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll fight your battles for you. But you, your part of that is to obey me. And so there are lots of covenants in the Bible. And God enters into covenants with his people on occasion. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, a new covenant is predicted. Days are coming when God will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It would be different from the covenant that He established with Israel at, at Mount Sinai. And so He looks forward to a new covenant. And then, of course, in the New Testament we read about that new covenant, especially in the book of Hebrews, where Christ has brought into effect a new covenant. Hebrews 9 verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So there's the first covenant. And then look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So Christ has entered into a a new way. And then... Finally, in chapter 10 and verse 9, He takes away the first, the first covenant, that He might establish the second. Well, and so there's kind of a review of the idea of covenant in the Bible. Again, it's a major idea that runs all the way from the time of Noah all the way through the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. Tonight we're going to talk about God's covenant with with David. God's covenant with David, God's agreement with David. This is a major covenant in the story of the Bible. And so we want to take a look at it tonight and uh, just note uh, some things about it in our discussion this evening. It affects both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're going to talk about the establishment of this covenant and David's response to it. Now, I say up here on the chart, we're going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 17 eventually. (laughs) We're not going to start there, but we're going to work our way up to that. What What I want us to see is why God would make a covenant with David. Who is David? And why would God enter into a covenant with him specifically, individually? What has David done that would prompt God to make this agreement with him and to bless him in this way? So let's think about the life of David and what David accomplished in his life. Now, it wasn't that long ago that we studied the life of David out here in the auditorium. Brother Chuck led us in that study. You might remember that uh, when we did that and recall some of that as we go through this material. So we're going to talk about the rise of David to the throne of Israel. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, now you might remember that when Israel passes through the Red Sea, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They eventually come to the land of Canaan, They conquer the land, and God God governs the people through judges. A series of judges are established, and they rule for a period of time. They're not kings. They're they're judges. And God raises them up, and they rule for a period of time, and then they, they, uh, they, they die, and another judge eventually arises. Well, the children of Israel got dissatisfied with that arrangement, and so they came to Samuel, the last judge, And they say, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And so we've noticed that all the nations around us have kings who govern them. We want to be like those nations. And so so you're you're old and your sons don't follow in your ways. Appoint for us a king so that we can be like the other nations. and A king that will lead us in battle and go out and fight our battles for us. Well, so of course Samuel was displeased with that felt like they had rejected him, but, but God tells Samuel, who God's also displeased with it, and he says, now, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me. I'm the one that they've actually rejected. But God gives them what they want. Sometimes God gives us what we want, even though he knows it's going to be bad for us. If our minds are made up and we're just stubborn about it, okay, that's what you want. You can have that, and that's going to be bad for you, but you can have it anyway. And you have to find out the hard way. And Israel is kind of like that. We want a king, and so God says, okay, you can I have a king. And the first king is Saul. And that, of course, ends in disaster. His reign is a failure. In fact, God takes the kingdom away from Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Saul was so ineffective and really uh, just not at all what a king of Israel should be. God, God regretted that he had even made Saul as king. Now God had chosen, he says, a man after his own heart. That's 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 13 and 14, to to rule as king. Samuel said to Saul, You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has appointed Him as ruler over His people, because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And So God tells Saul, you, You could have been king, You know, for forever. But you haven't kept the commandments, and so God takes the kingdom away from Saul, says, I've chosen a man after my own heart, and of course, that ends up being David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel anoints David to be king, and you read about that in the first 13 verses. We'll take the time to read all of that, but Samuel anoints David to be king. Now, he doesn't begin to reign at that time. He's anointed to be king, but he really doesn't begin to reign as king until until later. And so he's identified as the next king of Israel, has God's approval, has chosen, he's been anointed, and eventually he'll begin to actually rule over over Israel. Well, what makes David a great leader? He does become a great king, perhaps the greatest king in Israel's history. What, What? he begins to distinguish himself as a great leader. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David fights Goliath and defeats him. In 1 Samuel 18, it says it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now, now this is significant. Now, who is Jonathan? Jonathan is Saul's son. Now, what is Jonathan's future? As long as his father remains king, what's Jonathan going to be when his father dies? He's going to be the king. (laughs) And yet he's willing to recognize David as, uh, as future king. So Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Well, what's that all about? Oh, David, you know, i got a nice robe here. Jonathan's going to be the king. (laughs) He takes his robe, and he puts it on David. And he's acknowledging, David, you're, you're the one. You're the chosen one. He gave him his armor, including his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And so Jonathan, the heir, recognizes David's greatness the people recognize it as well in chapter 18, verse 6. It happened that as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine Goliath, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul, a tambourine with joy and musical instruments. And they sang as they played and said, Saul is slain as thousands, David is ten thousands. <laughs> so you see, everybody... Is supporting David the Lord is with him the Lord is increasing David's power and his influence so in verse 14 we read David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly he dreaded him and all Israel and Judah loved David and he went out and came in before them And so David increases and Saul decreases. And so you can see that David is God's chosen. The people are recognizing Saul sees it. Saul sees that he's prospering. The Lord is prospering him. Jonathan sees it. The people see it. The army sees it. And so David increases and becomes stronger and stronger. And Saul becomes weaker and weaker. Eventually Saul dies and David reigns. He reigns, first of all, over the southern area from Hebron. He reigns over Judah, but eventually he reigns over all Israel. And then that brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. This passage emphasizes David's successes. Verses 3 and 4 tell us. That the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So now, And now all the elders of Israel, they're, they're anointing David as king. So we're all, we're all behind you. You're our king. We recognize that, and we support you in, in this. In chapter 7, David captured the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. David is increased. This is going to become his capital. And so he captures Zion. He makes it his capital, his stronghold, his fortress. Verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then again, verse 12, David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Look at verse 11. Now, and so you see... David has been taken from uh, being a shepherd in the house of Jesse, he's been anointed to be king, he's had great success, defeated Goliath, won the praise of the people, the elders are acknowledging him as king. He realizes that he's going to be king and rule over Israel. Verse 11 says, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons. And they built a house for David. Now that's not an ordinary house, is it? (laughs) I don't know very much about what the houses in Israel in 1000 B.C. were like. And that's about when this is, about 1000 B.C. But I doubt that the common ordinary house included stonework of the stonemasons from from Tyre. And cedar trees and carpenters. And so this this is a great house, isn't it? that he's he's importing these cedars from Lebanon. And he's got skilled carpenters working on his house for him. He's got stonemasons working. And so this is a palace, isn't it? This is the king's house. This is is a great house. And so David is established as king. Not, Not a perfect man by any measure, but he's the man of God. He seeks God's approval, and God blesses him. Now that brings us to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Now we could look at 2 Samuel 7, but we're going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So so David, man of God, is king, established. All the people see that. He sees that. He's he's got this palace to live in. And verse 1 says, It came about when David dwelt in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. It shouldn't be that way. Here I am, a mere mortal (laughs) servant of God. Now I live in a grand house. I live in a great house. And the ark of God over here, it's dwelling in a tent. That just doesn't seem right to me. And so David says, I want to build a temple. I want to build a house for God. And, you know, God, I'm sure David has good you know, good uh, good intentions. He's a man of God. He's devoted to God. He wants to please God. He wants to do something good for God. Let's build a grand temple. I live in a grand house. Let's build a grand house for the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant. And at first Nathan agrees. The prophet agrees. Nathan says to David, do all that's in your heart for God is with you. And so Nathan says, great, that's wonderful. Build a, a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And so you remember from when the temple was first constructed back at, in the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai, and all that time, all those 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle, a structure, temporary structure, portable structure, made with tents. And it went from place to place throughout all the wandering in the wilderness. In David's time it was still in that kind of structure. And uh, at first, it was in Kiriath-Giaram, at the house of Abinadab, and then it was at the house of Obed-Edom, and finally brought to Jerusalem. You remember all, all that story we'll get into, and how David made a mistake first tra- trying to transport the ark to Jerusalem, and, but then he got it right and finally brought it to Jerusalem. And he tells Nathan, I, I want to build a house for the Lord. Well, let's, let's read on, verse 3. It came about the same night that the Word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. I have gone from tent to tent, from one dwelling place to another. In all places where I have walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. I'll make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth." I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will and we'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again, and the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue your enemies. Now, notice this. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So David says, I want to build a house for the Lord. Nathan says, that's a great idea. Go ahead and do that. And then the Lord tells Nathan, wait a minute. You know, have I ever asked for a house of cedar? Oh, since I brought you up out of Egypt during the period of the judges, did I ever ask for anybody to build me a house of cedar? No, I didn't ask. I, I, and David's not going to build a house for me. I'll tell you what, I'll build a house for him. God reviews his history with David, verses 7 through 8. And then verses 10, the second half of verse 10 through verse 14, we find God's covenant with David. This is God's covenant with David. One of the more important passages in the Old Testament. I hope that we uh, can appreciate that. Now, I want to notice the way the word house is used in this passage, 1 uh, Chronicles chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. The word house, if I've counted correctly, appears 14 times in this passage, 14 times. So the word house is a critical word in the passage. But it's used in different ways. And that's what we want to focus our attention on, because that helps us to focus on the message and the plan of God. So let's start in verse 1. David said to Nathan the prophet, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar. That's his palace, isn't it? That's a reference to David's house, the house that he, that he lives in, the one that's made of stone and the cedars of Lebanon and so forth. And then in verse 4 he says, "Go, God, God's telling Nathan, go tell David my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. Again. That's a temple. You're not going to build a house for me to dwell in. Verse 5, I've not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. Again, that's that's reference to a temple, isn't it? In all places, verse 6 says, where I've walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Again, a temple. He's talking about a temple there. That's what David wanted to build, and God said, "You, know, I've, I've never made that request of anybody. Don't know why you'd think this was the time to do that." Now God tells David that He will not build a house for Me. That's back in verse four. You will not build a house for Me. The, the, the "you" is emphatic. It's a way in which you can combine an independent personal pronoun with a verb and bring out the emphasis of a thing, and that's what you got here you will not build a house for Now God doesn't say nobody will build a house. It's just that David is not going to build a, pallet, a, a temple for the Lord. Now later on in 1 Chronicles we understand, uh, we're told why. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, David has shed much blood. He's a man of war. God's kingdom is to be a kingdom of peace. And so David's son Solomon, whose name is associated with peace, Is going to build this house. And then we come down into verse 10. Got all this underlined on this chart here. Come down to verse 10, where God tells David, I will build a house for you. He's not talking about a palace there. David's already got a palace. He's not talking about a palace there. He's not talking about a temple there, is he? That's a dynasty. I'm going to build a dynasty of you." And that's exactly what happens. Solomon becomes king, Rehoboam becomes king, on and on. The kings of Judah are descendants of David. All of of them are. And so that's a Davidic dynasty. But that's not all there is to this idea of God building a dynasty for David. Look at verse 12. He will build for me a house. That is David's seed, his offspring, will build for me a house. Now that has a double meaning, doesn't it? David's seed, David's offspring, will build for the Lord a house. Now we eventually find out, and we just read it tonight in fact in our reading, Solomon, David's son, builds a house, a temple for the Lord. Remember that's what David wanted to build. I want to build a house for the Lord. Well, your offspring will build a house for me. But it has a richer meaning, a deeper meaning, a a more significant meaning than that. You see, one of David's descendants is going to build a kingdom for the Lord. And so the word house means a palace, a temple, a dynasty, and a kingdom. Now how do I know that? Well, he will build a house for me. I will establish his throne forever. And uh, verse 14... I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And so when God tells David, your seed will build a house for me, we might think about Solomon. You know, Solomon's going to build that temple for the Lord, but we need to think even further into the future to the one seed of David. He's going to establish a kingdom for the Lord. And so verse 14 again, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. Now, we said we could look at this from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so turn over there because here's, here's a difference between the two accounts. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me. In 1 Chronicles 17, my house and my kingdom will be established forever. You see, David's house and David's kingdom and the Lord's house and the Lord's kingdom, one and the same. It's the same. And so, to sit on David's throne is to sit on the Lord's throne. To sit on the Lord's throne is to sit on David's throne. The Lord's kingdom is David's kingdom. The kingdom that's going to be established by David's seed is the Lord's kingdom. They're one and the same. I said we're going to do some Bible study tonight, and so I <laughs> hope you're sticking in there with me. Now, where is all this fulfilled? When, when is this fulfilled? It's, it's not fulfilled right away. We might think, well, you know, maybe, maybe Solomon is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And there are some points of correspondence. That's how I say it. There are some points of correspondence between the prophecy and Solomon. Solomon is a son of David. He is an offspring of David. He's the king. He reigns. He built a house for God. He built a temple for God. But he didn't reign forever, did he? (laughs) And that's one of the things that's predicted in this prophecy, in the covenant that God made with David. I will establish his throne forever. Solomon only reigned about 40 years. And then he died and somebody else reigned. He reigned for a while, somebody else reigned. And so you, you couldn't say it's fulfilled in Solomon. Now, there's some points of correspondence there, but, but it's not fulfilled in Solomon, is it? He couldn't be the fulfillment. And so we got to look for somebody else as the fulfillment of all of this. In fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 17, David says that... Uh, You've spoken of the distant future. This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord, but you've spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Some versions may say the distant future. And so Solomon's son really wouldn't qualify as something, a great while to come from when David lived. And so you're talking about the distant future, about things that are going to take place a great while to come. So we got to look for somebody else as the fulfillment of this, don't we? In fact, none of the kings that descended from David that ruled over Judah were great enough to fulfill this prophecy. That takes us to the New Testament then. Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. It's the last week of Jesus' life. Different ones are coming up to Jesus, asking him questions. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? He answers that. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? He answers that. What's the greatest commandment? He answers that. And finally, in verse 41, well, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He's the son of David. And so the Jews came to realize the Christ, the Messiah, would be the son of David. The son of David that was spoken of back in 1 Chronicles 17, 2 Samuel 7, that's that's the Messiah. Now none of the kings of the past really fit the description. They all came and gone, they all reigned for a while and died. There's one that's greater than even they were who's going to come and establish this kingdom. And of course Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is the son of David, who will sit on the throne of God and reign over God's kingdom as the king forever. You know, as as important as 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles 17 is to the story of the Bible, it's never quoted verbatim in the New Testament. But look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 33. The angel is talking to Mary here, and verse... 31 says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now that may not be a direct quotation to the passage we're looking at, but strong allusion to it, isn't it? In fact, The New Testament goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is a descendant of David, physically a descendant of David. You see it in both the genealogies of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, but and then especially, or Luke chapter 3, but especially in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David. Who's the Christ? Whose son is he going to be? The son of David. Matthew says, I want to tell you about the son of David. It's Jesus Christ. He's the son of David. In fact, if you read down through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, David's name is mentioned five times more than any other name in the genealogy. In fact, the number 14 is associated with David. If, if you put a numerical value to each letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the letters in the name of David equal 14. 14. So many people think that that's that's the illusion. That's the, not illusion, but illusion. (laughs) In Matthew chapter 1, the number 14, is an allusion to David. And so, it's fulfilled in Christ. talked about that. The Jews understood that Christ would be the son of David. The passage is alluded to in Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Jesus is linked to David in Matthew's and Luke's genealogies. Jesus is called the son of David by those who encountered Him. Let's look at a couple of those. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 27. Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed Him, crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. I hope we can see the importance of that description. Son of David. You're the Christ. You're the descendant of David that was promised in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. You are the one that's going to establish God's kingdom and you're going to sit on God's throne and rule over David's kingdom, the Lord's kingdom forever. You're you're the one. You're the son of David that we've been looking for all these years. And then look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 23. Matthew 12, 23. Verse 22 says, The demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, This can't be the son of David, can it? Is this the son of David? You think this is the son of David? Is He the one that we've been waiting for all these years? And then in Matthew chapter 15, there's one more instance of this, Matthew 15. And in verse 22, remember this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, Syrophoenician woman. She came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She's the one that says even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table she could see. She's a Canaanite woman. She's not a Jewish woman. She's a Canaanite woman. And she refers to Jesus as the son of David. One other passage, Acts chapter 2. And so this passage plays a critical role in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 29. Now brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And so, Because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. There's our passage, isn't it? (laughs) He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He's poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David, incorpor- uh, Paul, Peter incorporates, get the name right eventually, the, uh, the Davidic covenant in his sermon on on Pentecost. I'm going to stop there. there. are times I'm going to stop there. It's a two-part sermon. I got working on this sermon, and I thought, I got too much <laughs> to cram into one sermon. So I did you a favor. I'm going to divide it up. What I really intended on the outset is to look at the response of David to all of this. It's a great passage. But we needed to build our way up to that. Think about who David was. Why would God enter into a covenant with David? He's a man after God's own heart. And look at all that David did as king of Israel. David says, you know, I want to glorify God. I'm going to build a house for him. And God says, no, David, not you, but I'll build a house for you. I won't let you build a house for me, but I'll build a house for you. And your seed will sit on your throne forever. Is that Solomon? No. Now it can't be Solomon. Solomon died long ago. Who is it then? It's Christ, the Son of David, the descendant of David who was killed, raised from the dead, ascended to the throne of David, to the throne of God where He rules and will rule forever and ever. This is one of many messianic prophecies in, in the Bible. I started making a list of some of the Messianic prophecies. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1-3, Genesis 49.10, Deuteronomy 18.18, the 2nd Psalm, the 22nd Psalm, the 16th Psalm, the 110th. I finally just stopped. Well, I won't have have time to list them all. There's There's just too many. But this is an outstanding one. What this teaches us is that God has a plan. God has had a plan. And he's been working that plan for a long, long time. He worked it through Abraham. He worked it through David. He worked it through Christ. Are you going to be part of the plan? Are you going to be a recipient of God's plan to redeem a fallen race? Are you going to appeal to Christ, who is both Lord and Christ, for the forgiveness of sins so that you can be a participant in this kingdom. Will you submit to the authority of the Son of David and live for Him? We hope that you will. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we stand amazed tonight because of your wisdom, because of your power, that in eternity you had a plan to save a rebellious race to save those who turn away from you, turn to self. But you're willing to forgive and you've made it possible for them, for us to be forgiven. You've worked out that plan from the very first sin, from the seed of woman to Abraham to David, and then through Christ. You did all of that for us, so that we might benefit, so that we might be blessed so that our sins might be forgiven and that we might enjoy fellowship with you, the fellowship we lost because of our sin. We're so thankful, Father, that you've done this for us. We're undeserving, but we are thankful that in your grace and love you've made this possible. Help us to see, Father, the greatness of that plan. Help us to submit to it and obey your commandments so that we might participate in the benefit of your covenant. Then, Father, help us to fulfill our responsibility to walk in your ways, to keep your commandments as participants in this covenant. We pray your help in that. Father, we pray that you'll be with us as we go through this week, that you'll make us mindful of these things that we've done today, that we've talked about today. They'll have an impact on our lives day by day until we meet again we pray these things in Jesus name amen if you're here tonight